It was a mild Thursday afternoon on January 25th, 1990, as Paul Onions made his way along the Hume Highway, heading south of Sydney. Gravel crunched beneath his feet in an almost rhythmic fashion, his footfalls even and unyielding. He had come to Australia in search of adventure, but as the days fell into weeks, he also found himself looking for work. He had traveled far and wide, often hitchhiking to get from place to place, never giving a second thought to his own safety. At the time, hitchhiking was simply another way to get around. Paul had trust in his fellow man, and it was this trust that would put Paul's life in the crosshairs. On a fateful day, he found himself walking the highway, trying to catch a ride where he would meet the face of death. What is up, Iwu crew? Today we're taking a look at the infamous crimes of the renowned backpack murderer. This case is rife with unimaginable horrors, crimes so depraved and unthinkable, it's hard to imagine anyone capable of committing them. We're diving deep to uncover the murder's darkest secrets in an attempt to discover who was the man behind these gruesome killings. If you enjoy true crime, mysteries, and true stories, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get to it. Paul Onions found his way to a nearby corner store, looking to quench his thirst after hours spent walking in the hot Australian sun in 1990. As he made his way towards the door, hefting his backpack high on his shoulder, a silver truck pulled up next to him. A man jumped out, muscular and good-looking, with a distinctive handlebar mustache lining his lip. He quickly asked if Onions needed a ride, and he was grateful. The stranger introduced himself as Bill, and shortly afterward, they both climbed into the man's pickup. As they drove, Onions noticed that Bill seemed to become increasingly agitated. He began ranting, making racist and xenophobic comments that put Paul ill at ease. He also asked Onions a slew of questions. Was anyone waiting for him in Canberra, the town to which they were headed? Did he have any special forces training? And perhaps most chilling of all, did anyone know where he was headed? As the questions became increasingly more personal, Onions found himself becoming alarmed. Though initially grateful for the ride, it became clear to him as their time together wore on that whoever Bill was, he was an unhinged man. After a while, Bill pulled over to the side of the road. He said he wanted to grab a cassette from underneath his seat. Onions was suspicious, since there were a stack of cassettes sitting on the armrest between them. But cautiously, he played along. As Bill got out of the vehicle and fished around beneath the driver's seat, Onions casually opened the door and stepped out. He wanted to see how Bill would react. Bill asked what he was doing, a severe look of warning on his face. Onions replied he was merely stretching his legs and climbed back into the truck in hopes of appeasing Bill. Bill also climbed back into the truck, claiming he couldn't find the cassette and so they continued on. Until moments later when Bill said he once again wanted to check for the tape. He pulled over and within seconds, 
had his hands back beneath the driver's seat. This time, he pulled out a length of rope, and Onions began to panic. He knew now for certain that this man had dark and dangerous intentions, and in his alarm, he struggled to remove his belt and open the door to escape. Bill pulled a revolver out from beneath the seat and aimed it at Onions. Bill told him he was being robbed. Onions saw that he had only one shot at escape, and it was now or never. He pushed open the door and, leaving all of his earthly possessions behind, he ran. Bill chasing wildly behind him, screaming that he was going to shoot. And he did. Onions only barely managed to dodge the bullets that flew at him, running out into traffic. Around him, cars slowed and drove past, ignoring his pleas for help. Until finally, he ran out in front of a car. The driver was Joanne Berry. Her family was crammed into the back seat. Paul tugged the door open and climbed inside. Terrified, Joanne tried to get Onions to leave, but he kept shouting at her to drive. He told her the man with the truck had a gun, and fearing for the safety of her family, Joanne sped away. Though Onions didn't know it, he had just escaped a fate worse than death. Joanne drove him to the Bowral police station, there, he reported the near-death incident with a female officer. She promptly took his statement and filed it away. It would be years before the report resurfaced, and by then, it would be far too late. Left without any possessions, passport lost in his backpack that was now stowed away in Bill's truck, Paul Onions was left with little choice but to make his way back to Sydney. There he replaced his documents and decided to leave Australia behind him after the horrible chance with fate. He caught the first flight he could back to the UK, and that was where police would find him years later when the truth about Bill came to light. September 19, 1992 was a day like many others. It was sunny, warm, and for two runners that were orienteering in part of the Belangelo State Forest, it seemed the perfect day. As they made their way through a part of the forest known as Executioner's Drop, the stench of decay started to permeate the air. They slowed, certain that an animal had died somewhere nearby. But what they found was more horrifying than they ever could have imagined. Not far from where the runners stood, they found a shallow grave and discovered the bodies of two women lying face down with hands tied behind their backs. When police arrived at the scene, they found the women covered by brush and leaves, their bodies decomposing beyond the point of recognition. Near the bodies was a makeshift fireplace, a crude imitation made of brick, and surrounding the fireplace were a multitude of cigarette butts and spent 22 caliber casings. This detail gave police insight into the mind of the killer telling them that he had taken his time out there in the vast emptiness of forest while the depths of his depravity were just beginning to unfold. It was discovered the women were Caroline Clark, 21, and Joanne Walters, 22, both Britons who had come to Sydney together in search of nanny work. The women had been missing since May of the same year, 1992. When coroners examined the bodies, a horrifying image of torture and sadism began to piece together. 
Joanne Walters had been gagged and stabbed repeatedly. One of the stab wounds had cut so deep that it severed part of her spine, effectively paralyzing her as the savage attack raged on. She was found with her pants button done up and zipper down, as though the clothing had been taken off and then hurriedly redressed. For Caroline Clark, an equally terrifying fate awaited. She too had been stabbed repeatedly, but in a cruel twist, she was found to have been shot in the head at least 10 times with a 22 caliber rifle. Four bullets remained inside her skull, and police collected them for further testing. They believed that Clark had been used as target practice, though which bullet proved fatal was impossible to tell. Officers searched the surrounding area, conducting a sweep of the nearby premises for any remaining evidence, or far worse, any other victims. However, their search turned up nothing of note, no other remains or physical evidence that could help produce a substantial lead. When news broke of the discovered remains, many in the area began to speculate that a serial killer was loose in Belongolo State Forest, but police denied the idea. After all, there was no evidence to support the belief that a crime like this had ever happened before. Those that championed the belief that a serial killer was responsible for the deaths of Clark and Walters pointed to the growing numbers of missing hitchhikers in the area. But police remained firm that there was nothing to suggest a serial killer had committed the crime. Despite the wealth of forensic evidence that the police were able to collect from the bodies of Walters and Clark, as well as from the forested area surrounding their graves, Officers struggled to come up with any tangible leads to who may be responsible. They consulted with Dr. Rod Milton, a forensic psychiatrist working with the New South Wales Police Force. He had over two decades worth of crime scene analysis experience, and police believed he could help provide insight into who the killer was. When Dr. Milton was taken to the crime scene by police, he walked the length of the scene analyzing it to discover why the killer had chosen that particular spot. After surveying the scene and poring over detailed crime scene photos and forensic reports, Dr. Milton pulled together a profile that he believed fit the killer. He determined the killer would be in his mid-30s with a history of aggression. He would know the area, would be familiar with the terrain and seclusion. He was a man motivated by sadistic impulses and one who took immense pleasure inflicting pain on others. Though police now had a working profile of the man they believed killed Clark and Walters, progress on the case remained slow. Though they were eager to find the killer and bring him to justice, they also proceeded thoroughly. They followed up on all leads and checked into any suspicious disappearances in the area. But despite their best efforts, police were left no closer to catching their killer than when they had started. Leads ran cold, and the case slowly began to fade into the background. Thirteen months after the discovery of Clark and Walters, in October of 1993, two more bodies were found. They belonged to two 19-year-olds, James Gibson and Deborah Everest. The two had been missing since 1989, and the discovery of their badly decomposed bodies helped to shed new light on the dying case. 
Gibson and Everest were native Australians that had been making their way south from Sydney to a conservation festival on December 9, 1989. Both were found with matching stab wounds, punctures so deep they severed the spine and paralyzed the victims. A fire pit and shell casings were also found nearby. This new crime scene was a mirror image of the one police had found little more than a year ago, less than a hundred feet away. It was now impossible to deny there was a serial killer hunting in Belongolo Forest. Desperate for answers, the New South Wales Police Department brought Superintendent Clive Small onto the case. Small was the assistant police commissioner with experience handling difficult cases, but this was perhaps the cruelest he had ever seen. Small was given overall charge of the investigation, and he went to work immediately. Small initially believed they could catch the killer, but to do so, they would need to identify all of his victims. The superintendent set up a large task force to search the extended area of Belongolo Forest. If there were other bodies out there, he would find them. And find them, he did. Nearly a month after the bodies of James Gibson and Deborah Everest were found, on a warm November 1st, police uncovered the body of Simone Schmidl. Simone was a German backpacker hitchhiking alone along the Hume Highway, headed south of Sydney in search of work. Schmidl was found with the trademark puncture to the spine, immobilizing her as she was brutalized repeatedly. Near the body were the same hallmarks that had become something of a calling card. The crude fireplace, the 22 shell casings, the same shallow grave covered in debris. Widening their search, Small was certain it was only a matter of time before they found more victims. Then, just three days after the discovery of Simone, the police uncovered two more victims, Anya Hobscheid, a 20-year-old from Germany, and her boyfriend, Gabor Neugebauer, 21, who had been missing since December 26, 1991. But this crime scene, though similar to the others, had one very significant difference. Gabor had been strangled and then was repeatedly shot until he died. His jeans had been unzipped, with the button done up as had been seen at so many crime scenes before. Anya had multiple stab wounds, but in a bizarre and gruesome twist, she had been decapitated using a machete. Though police searched far and wide through the Belongolo State Forest, they were never able to recover her head. Small was faced with an undeniable truth. No one was safe as long as the killer was free. With the bodies piling up around him, Small confessed to the public that a serial killer was indeed among them, publishing photographs of the victims they had found. More disturbing still, there were significant similarities between the types of victims the killer was targeting. These were young men and women in search of work, adventure, and a carefree life. But what they received was a horrific and devastating end. For police, sorting through the evidence presented at the crime scenes was a difficult task. With so much physical evidence, it would take months to process and go through all of the facts present in the case. The killer had used a wide variety of methods to murder his victims, beating, strangulation, stabbing, shooting, and beheading. 
This made it difficult to pinpoint who exactly they were looking for. To complicate matters further, Small was suddenly inundated with calls from concerned citizens who were petrified to leave their homes with a murderer on the loose. The pressure was mounting, and Small needed answers. Despite the mountain of physical evidence and the team of officers behind him, Small was unable to catch a break in the case until 1994, when a man named Paul Onions, who lived a continent away, saw the investigation on TV and made a call to the NSW station. Ivan Malat had been on the police station's radar for decades. He was violent, aggressive towards authority, uncooperative, and a frequent repeat offender. So it was no surprise that when these crimes occurred, Malat was on the short list of potential suspects. But evidence tying him to the crimes was murky at best. They needed something concrete. Otherwise, their allegations would never hold. But when Paul Onions called the police station that day in 1994, everything changed. Small listened to the story Onions told him of his harrowing escape from Bill's truck those few years ago, and the tale seemed unbelievable. Was it possible that he had just found the missing link that could tie all the pieces of the puzzle together? Small needed to be sure, so he called the one person that could corroborate the story, Joanne Berry, the woman whose car that Onions had climbed into that day. After speaking with Barry, who confirmed Onion's story in detail, Small knew he had a smoking gun. He flew Onions out to Australia as soon as possible and prepared a photographic lineup. Small had Onions point out his assailant and unequivocally, without hesitation, he picked out Malat. The superintendent presented the new evidence to a judge and it was enough to get him a warrant to search Malat's properties. What they would find inside changed everything. In the early morning hours of May 22, 1994, nearly 50 police officers clad in black surrounded the home of Ivan Malat. Donning bulletproof vests beneath their uniforms, they circled the home, ready for anything. Yet, as they entered the home, Malat actually believed he was being pranked by a friend. Quickly, though, he learned that wasn't the case. Police arrested Malat for his assault on Paul Onions and proceeded to search the house for any confirmation that would tie him to the other horrific crimes. Scattered throughout the home, across the rooms and other properties that Malat owned, was a treasure trove of evidence. Parts of guns were spread throughout the house, including that of a 22 caliber rifle. There were casings of ammunition, which would later be tested, the ballistics matching the bullets pulled from Joanne Walter's skull. Many of the victim's personal effects were also found distributed throughout the home, sleeping bags, camping gear, and backpacks among them. In a later search of the home of Malat's mother, the police found a curved machete locked away inside a large glass case. Small brought Malat to the station for questioning, but Malat was a veteran at interrogations, having been in the station often since childhood. He refused to talk, even if the evidence began to speak for him. Malat was held on his arrest for assault until the ballistics came back with a positive identification. He was then charged with an additional seven counts of first-degree murder. 
Malat was uncooperative from the start. He refused to address the crimes he had committed, despite the physical evidence against him. He protested his innocence, but police weren't swayed by his pleas. Malat hired John Marston as his defense attorney, who had previously represented him, but Marston was too convinced that Malat was guilty, and the insurmountable evidence compelled him to advise Malat to plead guilty. In return, Malat fired Marston, once again proclaiming his innocence. Malat entered a plea of not guilty on all counts, and a trial date was set. After multiple delays, the trial went ahead in March 1996. Onions was the star witness for the prosecution, the one man that had come face to face with death and had lived to identify Malat. Onions was a compelling and engaging witness, one that handled his cross-examination with ease. He was believable and confident in his account, something that held sway with the jury, and he recounted his story in great detail. The victim's families followed after Onions' testimony. They spoke of their loved ones and detailed their lives together before recounting the last time they saw their sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and they spoke about the devastating loss they all suffered. Then the prosecution presented the physical evidence, a damning array of items that had been found in Malat's own home, along with expert testimony that continued to bury Malat further. For his part, Ivan Malat took the stand to claim his innocence. In a letter obtained from the Daily Mail UK, one written between himself and an anonymous pen pal sometime after, Malat would write that he told the court he, quote, absolutely knew nothing that could shed any light upon it. Yet Malat's story fell apart under cross-examination, and his only explanation for the items found in his home was to pinpoint the blame on his own brothers. The trial lasted a total of 15 weeks, and on July 27, 1996, after three days of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict guilty on all counts. Malat was sentenced to seven life sentences in prison, along with an additional six years for his assault on onions. For the families of his victims, seeing Malat sentenced was the justice they needed to help begin the healing process. But Malat would go down fighting, if not in the court of law, then from inside his cell. In May of 1997, security guards at Maitland Prison began to hear rumors of a possible jailbreak. The threat was a serious one, and they wasted no time in investigating the claims. Much to their relief, they were able to find the perpetrator of the jailbreak. The mastermind was none other than Ivan Malat. Malat had convinced George Savard, his neighboring cell occupant, to help him stage something of a coup. His intention was to find a way to break free from the prison that held him. But in the end, his plans would be entirely foiled. The two inmates were separated and rehomed in cells much farther apart. The following morning, however, after his failed outbreak attempt, Malat's co-conspirator Savard was found hanged in his cell. Malat was moved to a supermax security cell where he spent his days scribbling messages to himself across the walls. Some were affirmations of his innocence some religious scripture, and some seemingly cryptic with meanings no one but Malat himself could understand. 
Ivan continued to protest his innocence, filing appeal after appeal. Yet each time his appeals were denied, his efforts fell on deaf ears, and Malat was never awarded the appeal he so desperately sought. Though Malat had been locked away for years, the Belongolo State Forest still held many secrets that police were desperate to uncover. There were many other disappearances, and victims had vanished from the Hume Highway, and the police were trying to tie those disappearances back to Malat. Though they were unsuccessful, Malat's former attorney John Marston would go on the record in 2005 to state that during his time spent with Malat, the convicted murderer confessed to him that a woman had often been involved in perpetrating the crimes he committed. Indeed, many believed this must have been true, given the varied nature and cause of death, and the time it would have taken to overpower, subdue, and torture his victims. Despite this belief, no one has ever been convicted of being Malat's accomplice. After Malat's arrest, a woman came forward to claim that she knew for certain that he wasn't responsible for the backpack murders. The name coined for the killing spree targeting of young travelers in New South Wales. The woman, who was never named to keep her identity protected, believed that Malat was innocent because she said that her own husband, Wynne Kasperchek, was responsible for the many gruesome deaths. She even worked with police to gather evidence against her husband, including her children's own testimonies of helping their father mutilate and bury bodies. And she actively tried to help Malat get a retrial. The woman said in an interview, I've spoken to Ivan about it and been down to see him a couple of times because I really wanted to be sure if he genuinely did it or if he was innocent. Kasperchek was arrested in 1994, but not for any of the killings. Stories like this did shed some doubt on Malat's guilty verdict, especially with his continued proclaims of innocence. However, there were over 400 pieces of undeniable physical evidence tying Malat to the murders. On May 13, 2019, Ivan Malat was taken to Prince of Wales Hospital where he was treated for lumps in his throat and stomach. There he received a fatal diagnosis, esophageal and stomach cancer. Knowing his time was short, police investigators attempted to get a deathbed confession. They visited Malat a total of eight times, using different tactics such as switching out investigators, as well as producing videos of recorded interviews with the victim's families. Sadly, nothing worked. And on October 27, 2019, Ivan Malat succumbed to his illness and died without ever having confessed to the crimes he committed. In the time that followed Malat's conviction, his loved ones remained torn on the subject of his innocence. Some, like Brother Boris, were outspoken about their belief in his guilt. Boris Malat would go on record saying his brother had displayed psychopathic tendencies from the age of 10 claiming he always knew Ivan would become a killer. Others, like Malat's nephew, Alastair Shipsy, wholeheartedly believes in his innocence, saying he was a good man with a kind heart, someone that was incapable of committing such terrible crimes. Though his acts remained divisive amongst family members, his crimes became an inspiration for horror aficionados. The grim and gruesome case of Ivan Malat, the backpack murderer, 
was in part the basis for the Australian horror cult classic Wolf Creek. And so, the legacy of Australia's most vicious and notorious serial killer lives on long after his death.